Well, those ancient words that we just sang about and we talk about regularly, today are going to take us to a meal. Open up your Bible with me to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible, you'll find our account for today there in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse number 13 today. And as we look at it, we're, again, we're going to land at a meal today. We've been watching these fishing lessons that Jesus is teaching to his disciples. Let's just understand the context of, of where we're at and where we're headed today so we can understand what the ancient words have for us. Jesus has called to himself a group of men. These men were around Jesus for a year, year and a half. And he has invited them to join with him in his plan to change the world. And where we're going to land today, as we watch this lesson that Jesus has for his disciples, is there in a banquet hall at somebody's house where we have a meal together. Now meals are an interesting thing. I tell you, meals, strange things happen at meals. They really, really do. I remember... When I first met the wife, the family of my wife, and it was at a meal. Now, meals are, this is something that occurs sometimes, you know, in in dating relationships. We're flashing back now over 25 years to, uh, I was in high school, and Nancy was in high school, and she invited me to her house for a meal. Now, the blending together of two families is, is always interesting. You know, to bring me with my experience, how family worked and how mealtime worked, to bring that now into the midst of Nancy's family, where they had mealtimes and, and how they did things, and now we all come together at Nancy's house for a meal. Now, let me explain my house, Okay. At my house, there were five kids, and my parents, and usually my grandmother, and there was never enough food to eat, okay? It's how we live. So you know what that meant? It meant that you dived in with all of your might, and you ate as hard as you could, because pretty soon it was going to be gone. Anybody else grow up in a family like that? You had to eat quick. So we drank, and we ate large amounts of food very, very quickly, So that's how I thought that families did it. Big plates, big glasses, hefty amounts of food consumed in a hurry. Have you ever had a meal with me? I promise you I'll be done first, okay, every single time. Don't be offended. It's just how it works. Man, I put it down in a hurry. I was trained that way. So then I come to Nancy's house. Now, Nancy's family is very proper, okay? Two daughters. That's it, okay? We already have a problem, right? My house is full of men, boys that like to eat food. Two daughters. And we walk into the dining room. We all have to walk like this. And we sit down in the dining room, okay? We didn't have a dining room. We ate in the kitchen, you know? We sit in the dining room. And the fine china is all passed around. And I'm immediately struck by this problem. Because her mother brings a drinking glass and sits it down before me. There at the plate. 
I'm looking at that thing, and I'm like, that ain't a glass. What, are we going to do like communion here or what? I mean, it's this tiny little glass, okay? I mean, this is probably an exaggeration, so let's go there, okay? So, and we, we fill these tiny little glasses, and me, I mean, I'm just like, you know, get some more. And I remember her mother was kind of like, what is wrong with this young man? I remember that my little glass, okay, it wasn't that big, but it had to be filled over and over and over again. I was thirsty. That's how we did it at my house. Now, meals bring people together. They just do. It's it's not by accident that Scripture speaks of this. Jesus says that he knocks at the door, Open it, and he'll come in and have fellowship with you, and you'll have this fellowship meal together. The early church gathered together, and they celebrated the Lord's table, but they also had a meal together. There's, there's, something, there's something that is communal, that establishes community, that establishes fellowship around a meal. Now, as I said, we've been walking through these lessons of the fishermen, okay? Let's just review where we've been, all right? And then we'll get back to the meal. In the Gospel of Mark, we started on verse 13. We've been walking through these fishing lessons that Jesus has for, for these guys right along, the, right along the seashore, okay? The Sea of Galilee there. And he's been teaching these followers of Jesus how to reach the world with the Gospel. And the first thing we talked about is he said, it's time for you to get in the game. We, we shouldn't just be sitting on the sidelines anymore. God has you where you're at for a reason, folks. Not just the disciples of that day, but you. You go to the school that you go to. You play on the team that you play on. You work where you work. You live with your li- where you live on purpose. And the purpose is not for you to get smarter and kick harder and live longer. That's not your purpose. If you are in Christ, your purpose is to share him with others, to spread his glory, to be in the process where God raises up new people to know him. That's why you're here. That's why you are on this earth, to share him in your world. And it's time for you to get in the game. That's where Jesus started. It's time, boys. Let's get in the game. And then as we went through these lessons, we saw that Jesus was the only hope, that God alone has the power of new life, that forgiveness is the issue, that all men and women all have sin, and we need forgiven before God, and no man, no woman can offer you forgiveness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone offers complete forgiveness. There is one mediator between man and God. The man, Jesus Christ. The only means we have of coming to the Father is through belief in Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith alone. No works. No religion. No person, only through Christ. Forgiveness for sin is the issue. So where we're headed today, we're going to get to a meal. And it's all about influencing your 
world. Influence in the world that you are in. Now this story, this account of really the, the, the reaching of Matthew, Matthew's salvation and him being called to follow Jesus are in the three synoptic gospels. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all sort of tell the same stories about Jesus from a different perspective. It's kind of fun to read the three different gospels. And then you have the gospel of John, which brings a whole other perspective. But what I want to do for you now is I want to read through a harmony of the three synoptic gospels that speak of the calling of Matthew. So on the screen, I'm going to put all three of the Gospels kind of mixed together so you can see the full story of how Matthew became a follower of Jesus. So just read along, just follow along with me, I'll read it out loud. This is from Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. After these things, he went out, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a tax collector named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to Matthew, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Now it happened as he sat at the table dining in Levi's house that behold, a great number of tax collectors and sinners also came and sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, well, they complained against the disciples saying, why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he answered, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I'm going to spend the most of our time in the Gospel of Mark. So you should turn here if you haven't done so already. And what I want to do to understand what's happening in the call and really the conversion of Matthew is before we really get into the passage and understand what the Spirit of God has for us, I want to get behind the scenes. Because in this story, there's a lot going on that we don't quite get. Because we don't live in that culture. Understand, this was written 20 centuries ago. 2,000 years ago, this happened. And so a lot of time has gone by. And a lot of events have occurred and, and things have changed. And so it's important for us in understanding this passage and what the Spirit of God has for us, we need to be able to reach back and understand what things meant then. And so I want us to get behind the scenes two ways, culturally and theologically. 
Before we really dive into the passage, I want us to understand some things that are cultural, and I want us to understand some things that are theological about this passage. Okay? Let me help you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say. First of all, let's understand the disciples. The disciples. So at this point, we've got the four, and now Matthew's going to be added to the group. Okay? These men have known Jesus for well over a year. I have every reason to believe that Matthew has been listening to Jesus teach. They're in this town of Capernaum, okay? And Jesus is there at a home in Capernaum, and he's teaching. And Matthew is the tax collector in that town. So, and the, the, the Bible speaks of the masses coming to hear Jesus speak. Matthew was part of that mass of people that's hearing what Jesus has to say. But really what's going on here is Jesus is teaching two things. First of all, he's teaching who he is. Now listen to this. And secondly, he's teaching disciples who they are. The disciples are starting to understand now that God has a purpose for them. And the purpose is not to just take care of people like themselves and spend time and rub shoulders with people like them. Their purpose is to reach the sick. God is, Jesus is trying to help the disciples to see, you're here because people are in need of a physician. You are here because you are surrounded by sick, dying people who need to hear the gospel. And the disciples themselves need to understand this. They need to understand that God has them here God has them where they're at so they can share him with the world they're in. Folks, we are where we are for reason. Now, as opposed to them, you have what I'm going to call the religious elite. Let's understand culturally who these people are. They're pretty much diametrically opposed to what Jesus is calling the disciples to. The disciples are, he's trying to help them to understand, you're here to reach the world. The religious elite, they have decided that they are the world. That it is all about them. That they have figured out God. That they are the spiritually significant. And their mission, their mission is to rain judgment down upon everyone around them. To let everyone know that they are right and you are wrong. And so the religious elite have set up a whole system, a religion, quite honestly, that elevates man above others and eliminates God from the equation. And what that looks like, if we're elevating man by eliminating God, I must stand on the shoulders of someone that I will oppress. That's what the religious elite are doing. And who they oppress is the third group I want to introduce you to. And that's the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, what is that? We hear tax collector. We think IRS. We think our accountant friend, okay, but what is, what is this tax collector? Let me tell you what a tax collector was in that day. You see, the Jewish people are there living in 
the Jerusalem area, Israel, but they are under the oppressive arm of the Roman Empire. And here's how Rome did it. Here's how Rome conquered the world. They would defeat you militarily. They would crush you militarily. But they didn't wipe out the population. They beat your army, but they let you live on two conditions. One, that you will worship their emperor. And two, that you will pay their taxes. So, to allow this, they would place in your community two sets of people. One, a Roman guard, a military establishment that was there to rain terror on you if needed. But the second group, now this is where it gets significant for us, is the tax collector. Now let's understand who this person was. A tax collector was an individual who purchased from the Roman Empire the right to collect taxes. And they taxed everything. There's only two tax collectors that are identified by name that become really followers of Christ. Do you know who they are? One of them is Matthew, also known as Levi. The second one? I'll give you a hint. He was a wee, wee little man. Okay? Zacchaeus. And here's how it worked. Now imagine, put yourself in that situation. Imagine, I mean, you know, pick whatever government that comes and, and conquers us. And then they hire your neighbor, this conquering government. They hire your neighbor. And the neighbor's job is to collect taxes from you. And if you don't pay it, the military's coming to your door. And they taxed everything. Very likely, the kind of tax collector that Matthew was, from, from where he's seated, is he's sitting there on a main thoroughway. And if you ride by, you know, on a cart or whatever, and you have a group, you have a, a bunch of belongings with you, maybe you're a fisherman, and you have this morning's catch, Matthew comes up to your cart. He looks in, he says, you know what? I'll take that one, that one, that one, and that one. Put them in my car. Well, my cart. Put them in my cart. And you have to pay it. You have no option. And so what, what grew in time is an absolute hatred for the tax collectors. It got to where tax collector was quite honestly a broad term that just meant somebody who was anti-God. And so when the religious elite accuse Jesus and accuse the disciples of eating with the tax collectors, this was the lowest of the low in that culture. Now, what would that be in ours? What would be the lowest of the low morally? Morally now. Somebody come to your mind? I'm trying not to fill in the blank because I want you to fill it. So now, that person comes to Christ. They get saved. That person, the one who was so far from God, he was impossible to reach, comes to Jesus. Do you remember when you came to Christ? Is there a time in your life you can think back on? You don't have to have the moment in time, by the way. You don't have to know the date or anything like that. But there should have been a change. A change that occurred when you put your trust in Jesus. Do you remember that? 
It's what Matthew has experienced. And now he does the thing that God really calls us to do. He reaches out to his world to influence them towards Jesus. So let's go through Mark and understand here what is happening, okay? So Mark chapter 2, we already read all the gospel, the synoptic gospels that talk about this. Let's look at verse number 13 and see what's happening here. He went out again beside the sea, Jesus that is, and the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now we saw what happened culturally. Let me tell you what's happening theologically. Let me tell you what's happening behind the scenes theologically. Matthew now, the worst of the worst, the farthest you can imagine from God, the one person who could never, ever, ever trust Jesus, puts his trust in Jesus. He's made a brand new creature. A a miracle has happened. It's so miraculous, it's called being born again. It's a brand new birth. But we need to know that much is happening behind the scenes. You pull back the curtains and God is at work. Let me just tell you what God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are doing. When Matthew trusted Christ, when Matthew put his hope in Jesus, the Trinity was at work. Listen to the word of God. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Hear what God says he is doing. God says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When Matthew responded to Jesus, we need to realize that behind the scenes, God was at work. God was at work. The Lord isn't desiring anyone. God doesn't desire anyone to live away from him. He desires people to come to him. And so the Bible says he's drawing people to himself. And the spirit of God is at work. The spirit of God was working in Matthew's heart. You say, what was the spirit of God doing? Well, according to John chapter 16, the Spirit of God was convicting Matthew. The Spirit of God now, convicting Matthew of righteousness and judgment. He's doing this work. And Jesus himself is saying, I come for the sick. So we need to understand as we go into this passage that God is at work in the people around you. Do you believe that today? I mean, what if, imagine, what if God chose in his wisdom to pull back the veil for just a moment and you could see what he was doing in people's lives? I mean, what if right now I could look out there, it'd be an amazing skill, I tell you what, and I could see what God was doing. I could see that the Lord is convicting. I could see that the Lord was drawing I can see that the Lord is initiating work in people's heart. Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, let me tell you, a more incredible truth than that is it's happening. And I don't mean necessarily just here. I mean in the world that you live in. People are 
being worked on by God. Matthew here is sitting in this booth and Jesus walks into the scene. But this is not the first time they've met. This is not the first time that Matthew has encountered the God of the Bible. God has been working in his heart. The Spirit of God has been working in his heart to convict. The Spirit of God has been working in his heart to draw, just like he's doing that in people's lives that are around you. The truth is, you know what our role really is? You know what our role truly is in people's lives? I am nothing but an usher. That's what I am. What does an usher do? Well, you go to a wedding or something like that. If they have an usher and the usher meets you at the door, and they take you by the, well, they might take your wife by the arm, and they walk you to a seat and they sit you down. That is all we are as followers of Christ. We are simply in people's lives, ushering them ushering them forward so that God can work there. Now, I ask you once to think about who's the most unreachable group of people. And you came up with something. Now, let me ask you this. Who in your life may God be working on today? Is it a coworker? A family member? Who is God working on, drawing, convicting? Will you be the usher? Will you? Let's go back to the passage and see these invitations and responses. That's one I just gave you. Let's see them in this passage. Okay? Starts in a verse number, really. It's, it's throughout the passage, but let's go back to verse 13 and 14. I want you to see, first of all, Jesus' invitation to Matthew is to simply follow him. He says to Matthew, follow me. And again, as before, I do not believe that, that Matthew here goes into a trance and follows Jesus. He's been, he's been listening to Jesus. Jesus is in his town. The whole town is coming to hear Jesus teach. And now, Jesus comes to Matthew and he says, you, I have selected you. Come follow me. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives. Follow me. And Levi, or Matthew, does exactly what you and I are being called to do. He walks as Jesus walked. He lives as Jesus lived. What's Jesus been doing? Jesus has been living this life and saying, come and see. And so that's exactly what Matthew does. Verse number 15. It says this. And as he reclined at the table in his house. Whose house? Levi's. Matthew's. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So picture in your mind what has happened here. Matthew, a wealthy man, a wealthy man. He's a tax collector. It's the wealthiest people in the the town. A connected man. He's connected to the tax collectors and the sinners. He responds to the call of Jesus... And invites people into his life. And really what he's saying is, come and see. Come and see. And the means that he went through in doing this was, he said, hey guys, come have dinner at my house. There's somebody I want you to meet. What a, what a simple approach. What, what a dynamic approach. To invite people to his home where Jesus would be. 
Not enough it's going to work that way for you. But the transferable principle here in our lives is this. All we got to do, all we got to do is invite people to come and see Jesus. That's it. You, you don't have to do the work of convicting. You don't have to do the work of drawing. You simply allow people to bump into Jesus. Jesus will defend himself. You don't have to defend him. Charles Spurgeon was the person that was a pastor in the, in the mid-1800s, and he's the one who, who first made this statement. You don't have to defend a lion. You just let it go, and it defends itself. So many of us, we, we shy back. We shy back. We, we, we retreat back because of one primary reason. Pastor Billy has been challenging us with sharing the gospel. I'm going to have him do that in just a minute here. We've been shying back because we're afraid we're going to be asked a question that we can't answer. Listen, the only answer you need to give is the gospel. That's it. So for this will be the fifth time in a row. We've taken a few minutes of our service and said, here's an effective way to share the gospel. So watch. Watch. Learn. Learn the gospel. Learn an effective way to present it. Pastor Billy? Pastor Lowell is correct that our role, our role is to be an usher. Our role is just to connect people to God. So, as he said, five weeks in a row, this will be the fifth week, I'd like to share with you something. Can I share a picture with you that changed my life forever? You see, our world is a world of brokenness. Really, you don't have to think very hard to realize that. Everywhere we look, our world is filled with brokenness. But that's not God's design. God has a perfect design. He really does. But unfortunately... Many of us, all of us, our world is known by a world of brokenness. You see, all of us at one time or another have lived in this world, or we do live in this world. And the reason why we're here and not here is because of something the Bible calls sin. Sin is anything objective or apart from God's design. So, unfortunately, all of us are put here in, the, in a world of brokenness. And people realize this. Maybe they might not admit it, but they realize this. And what they try to do is that they try to escape this world of brokenness. They try education. If they can just be smart enough, then their world won't be broken. People try pleasure to escape so they don't have to think about it. Or drugs. Or just running after what they think will fulfill them. 
They run after money or fame, fame or fortune. And in their desire to try to escape from brokenness, unfortunately, what happens is they end up returning. They can't escape from the world of brokenness. God sees this and he knows this. And so what he did was he made a way for them to escape, for us to escape this world of brokenness. And it's his son, Jesus. You see, God sent his son, Jesus, to come onto this earth, to live on this earth, just like us, exactly like us, be tempted and go through the same struggles that we go through. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that he did not sin. And because he did not sin, he had the ability to take our sin and our brokenness upon himself. And he did this by dying on the cross. But it doesn't end there. On the third day, he rose again, defeating death, defeating sin, and defeating brokenness. You see, the only way for us to escape brokenness is if we, if we turn to Jesus. The word in the Bible is called repent. And repent just means turn 180 degrees from one direction to another direction. That's what it means. So instead of turning to brokenness, we repent and turn to Jesus. Not only should we repent, but God calls us to put our trust, and I'll just say it's the word believe, to believe, to believe on what God has done through his son Jesus. If you repent and you believe, then something amazing happens. You have an opportunity to grow and learn about God's design, more about how he has designed you to be and designed you to live. Not only that, as you learn about God's perfect design, he, he gives you an opportunity to go, to go back and help everyone else that's living in brokenness that can't escape to learn about Jesus and be more like God and his perfect design. Now, there's two types of people in this world. There's people that live in God's design, and there's people that live in brokenness. Which one are you? Which one do you want to be? If you want to be in God's perfect design, it's easy. It's as easy as A, B, C. First, admit that you're broken. Admit that you're a sinner. B, repent and believe on God's plan through his son, Jesus. And lastly, call out. That just means talk to God and tell him that you believe in his plan. Now, we're not suggesting that Jesus pulled out a board and drew that picture. But this was his message. In Mark chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, you can see that the message of Jesus is to repent and believe. So that's what he shared that day. As the tax collectors and sinners who sat there around him, who had been told by the religious elite 
that they were destined for hell and brokenness, hell being the ultimate broken condition. And he's there saying, careful. And he's there saying, there is life if one repents and believes. Go back to our passage now, back to Mark chapter 2. And notice what happens here. So as Jesus gives this invitation, the elite have an interesting response. In verse number 16 it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, we need to understand something. The religious elite... Those that feel that they're okay, the message of the cross is foolishness to them. They hate it. The Pharisees, listen now, they were expecting, they were wanting a Messiah to come. They knew that the Messiah would be God. They were expecting the Christ to be God. That is evident from the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the Messiah. So the Pharisees do the calculations in their mind and they say, well, then that means you're claiming to be God, but you're with the sinners. So that can't be. And this message, this, this, this problem, this tension continues to escalate through Jesus' ministry to finally the one who claims he is the Christ is hanging on a cross, being nailed to a, really a form of torture and execution for the sin of mankind. This is unacceptable to the religious elite. So what do they do? What do the, what do the religious elite do when they find something unacceptable? They attack. And I want you to see who they attack Because I want you to be encouraged that the opposition you feel is not just you. It's not just you. In fact, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. Let's see theirs. The Pharisees come. Luke says that they went to the disciples and they said, Why do you eat with the tax collectors and sinners? They don't just say Jesus, but they say you. Now, when it says here in Mark's Mark words, he says that the scribes of the Pharisees. So these guys are experts of the law. I mean, they know their Old Testament literally would have it memorized, okay? And they were experts at, at the fine tooth, sort of picking and choosing what they wanted to follow. And they come now with an accusation against Jesus and the disciples that he is, he's with sinners, He's with tax collectors. And they ask, what what is he doing eating with them? But I've got a better question for us today. What are the tax collectors doing eating with Jesus? Can you think about that for a minute? What about Jesus made the tax collectors and sinners willing to eat with him. 
See, I grew up in a church setting. I wasn't a believer. The church I went to didn't even preach the gospel. We had a minister. We had a pastor. And honestly, I wanted nothing to do with him. In my mind, he was an oddball that I didn't want to be around, not for one second. And probably a lot of people view me that way. Because I'm a pastor. People think that maybe my parents named me Pastor Lowell, right? That's your first name, right? Listen, there was something winsome and compelling about Jesus. And when Matthew said, I'm having a meal at my house and Jesus is going to be there, knowing he was going to draw that picture on the wall maybe, they came. Because there was a winsome and compelling nature to the character of Jesus and to the character of his followers. And folks, in your world, in the world that you live in, that's you. That's you. Maybe it's the place where you work. Maybe it's the place where you live. Maybe it's the hobby that you pursue. Maybe it's the sport that you play and that you excel in. Maybe it's the who knows what. But there's something about you in your environment that creates a winsome and compelling character. That when you say, when you say, can I tell you, can I draw you a picture that's changed my life? Those people will listen. I know what we all think. I think it too. I think if I could just have Billy, if I could just get Billy to come to my house and talk to the people that I know, well, then they'll respond. No. You are the one. You are the winsome and compelling character in the world that you live in. Will you resist the elite who say, how dare you? Will you resist that part of you that doesn't want to experience that kind of persecution and say, come, come and see. Now we have designed on purpose, I'm not going to you know, softball it here, on purpose we have designed what's happening the month of December for you to do just that. This whole month is all about you walking into your world with that winsome and compelling character and saying to the people in your life, hey, come with me. Now, what we're choosing, we're not doing a banquet at your house, okay? What we're using is Christmas Eve, morning and evening, three different opportunities For you to invite people to come and see. Listen, don't tell them to come and see me. Don't tell them to come and see Billy. Don't tell them to come and see the candles. Tell them to come and see Jesus. We're not going to do the old switcheroo, the bait and switch. No, tell them. I want you to come and see who Jesus is. Will you come with me? Is that scary? Yeah. Is it effective? 
It sure was here. What does it say? Many followed him. Many. Because God is at work behind the scenes. God's spirit is drawing. That's the invitation. Let's just close this out with verse 17. When Jesus heard it, heard what? The elite attacking his disciples. He said to them, listen to what he says. This is so powerful. This is so like Jesus. I mean, his words just cut and comfort. They speak to the truth. And look what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are well, they don't need a doctor. But those who are sick, they do. So I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' invitation is the same thing it's been since we started this really walk through the gospel of Mark. The invitation is repent and believe. See, the sick understood. And in this context, we're not talking about the flu or the cold. We're talking about people who know that they're sinners. People who know that they have wronged God. People who know that they are living brokenness and headed towards the ultimate broken condition of hell. They know it. And Jesus says, they're the ones that need this doctor. The ones who are well, there are no well. We're all sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. They believe they're well, so they believe they don't need a physician. So Jesus says, I'm not for them. They don't need me. They don't need me. So the invitation here is to repent and believe. And I want you to see, I want you to see how a person responds to that. And to get there, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Turn over a couple pages. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. By the way, if you're there already, look back at Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Just on our way. Check this out. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Isn't that incredible to think about? The people who have been rejected by the elite are drawing near to Jesus. In chapter 18, Jesus tells this story. It's called a parable, okay? Luke says this is a parable, but in it we will find exactly how we are being invited to respond to the call of Jesus. Verse numbers 9 through 14. Let me read it. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The elite. Verse 10. Two men. Can you see them? They went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The religious elite. How do you picture him? Is he wearing a robe? Is he carrying a candle? Great big thick Bible? I don't know. But he's a religious elite. And the other, a tax collector. How do you picture him? He's a broken man. He's lived brokenness. He's pursued all the world has to offer. And he's going to end in brokenness. The Pharisee 
standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Why, even like this tax collector. And reaches out his hand. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. And fortunately, his prayer ends right there. And we all say, thank you, Lord. In his pride, he says, I don't need a physician. But now, standing far off, humbly, I see him in the corner. He's wearing sin like a garment. His brokenness is there for all to see. And he stands there, the tax collector. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a beautiful account. What a strong contrast. What an accurate picture of the state of human beings. One says, I'm fine without God. One says, I am helpless on my own. Jesus says, I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Justified. That means declared righteous before God. That means when God looks at this person who's justified, he sees the righteousness of his son. He doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see the betrayal. He doesn't see the the rebellion against God. He sees his son. He sees this man and he's justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Folks, that's grace. That's grace. And the world needs grace. Grace, the world that you live in, the world that you have influence upon, the world that you know and love needs this kind of grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, that you took sick sinners like us. And you saved us. Lord, you brought us peace. You brought us relationship with you. And Father, it is from a heart of joy and gratitude that those who are in you stand before you justified. Not because we're good, not because we're religious, not because of anything other than what Jesus has done. It is the only hope we have. So, Lord, we stand before you justified, leaning upon your mercy and leaning upon your grace. And, Lord, as we continue in prayer, God, would you burden us with the world that we're in? Lord, may we be like Matthew, who responded to your call to follow you, walk as you walked, and allow people to encounter you, to usher people into your presence. Lord, it's our joy, it's our joy 
when you use us this way. Amen.